Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share God's Word tonight. And as we start up with me, I have my Bible, and my Bible that I get to use when I preach is actually a Bible that once belonged to my grandfather. It was his Ryrie Study Bible, and when he passed uh, back in my high school years, I was able to um, have his Bible with his sermon notes in it, and it's a joy to do that. And as I think about my grandfather, I think of one special memory that I had with him, which was uh, doing a Awana Grand Prix car. Um, A lot of you have probably done those in the past. I know that we had Awana quite a while ago here, and in fact, we still have some of the old packs up in a closet. I found them recently. Um, But I remember doing an Awana Grand Prix car as a kid, and that was a really good lesson for me in patience. And my grandfather was the guy who had a tool for everything. And uh, he was really good at that kind of thing. So I remember working on that with my dad and with my grandfather. And I'd work on one part. Obviously, you had to carve it out and then sand it down and then paint it down and then put the decals on and make sure it looked shiny and then actually like practice to make sure it actually went. Um, all of those things that had to happen. And I remember at every stage, I'd work on it and say, okay, is it done now? It's like, nope, you need to keep sanding that. Nope, you need to keep working on that. You're not quite done yet. So then I'd work on it more. Is this part done now? It's like, well, I guess that part's done, but we're still not done with this car yet. We have to keep working. And every step took more and more work. And as a kid, having a project like that that I put hours into was an important uh, practice for me to be able to learn that I wasn't quite done yet. And then really, the lesson that I learned ultimately from my grandfather when I was working on that was uh, I was not officially done with that car until the race was over. All the preparation went into it, and once the races were done, then finally I could say that the job was complete. And tonight, really what we're going to be looking at in the Philippians chapter 3 is the importance of the fact that you are not done yet. Have there ever been times in your life when you feel like you're in a holding pattern, where you're staying in the same place, where maybe even you feel like you are stagnating spiritually, putting everything on hold? Paul has an important reminder for all of us tonight who ever get into a stage like that in our spiritual walk. And here's his reminder, you're not done yet. And so because we're not done yet, Paul admonishes us to push forward. This passage that we're going to look at is a call to arms. It's a call to action. I absolutely love Philippians chapter 3. And in the first half of it, a section we're not going to be covering tonight, Paul really told us of everything that used to be important to him in his life. He listed off all of his status, all of his popularity, everything he had achieved, the things that many of us would be very happy to achieve in our own lives. And Paul turned back and looked at all of it before his life in Christ, and as he reflected on it, it was waste, refuse, dung. He used very strong language to say that everything that he used to live for counted as nothing. And in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, in Philippians chapter 3, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So in this whole passage, Paul began by saying, this is what I used to be, but now I realize in Christ those things are nothing. And my new life in Christ has a completely different value system. And so today we see that we are not done. And so he admonishes us, since we're not done, push on. And so we're going to start tonight in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 3. If you look in verse 13, and we'll read down through the end here. It says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind 
and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now even with weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Tonight we're going to see that we need to push forward, and we're going to do that first of all tonight by learning to adjust our mindset. Adjust our mindset. And that comes in verse 13 where he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When we look at the life of Paul, we see somebody who was single-minded and absolutely driven. And in this passage, we see that there was one thing he wanted. He wanted to win. And so as we look at adjusting our mindset, we start by aiming to win, which really comes in verses 13 and 14. Paul was consumed with winning, and he was indeed competitive. Have you ever met someone who's competitive? Maybe it's you. We all have that bit of competitiveness in us, but I know that sometimes even when I'm playing a sport or playing a pickup basketball and somebody is just really fiercely competitive and they are going out and they're diving on the floor and they're doing everything that's possible, sometimes I eventually just step back and go, okay, you can have it. It's fine. Um, most of the time it's because I don't want to get injured again, but, um, but you know, sometimes when you're playing sports with someone like that, you're like, all right, you are super competitive, more driven than I'll ever be. It's not that important. I just want to be able to walk home tonight. Or even sometimes you're playing with people and you're in the midst of a board game and they are just so intense with that board game and the same response comes. It's like, you know what? You, you can win. This is fine. I'll be, I'll be okay by the end of tonight. And when we look at Paul, he was incredibly driven. Spiritually speaking, Paul was not going to give an inch. What does it mean when he says that he wants to win? I think it comes in the first half of the chapter where he talks about that he wants to know Christ better. He wants to win Christ. And be found in him. And so winning is getting to the end of our life with as much of Jesus as possible. It's hearing well done uttered from the lips of our Savior. What did he pursue? So how did he pursue that finish line of life? We see first of all as we readjust our mindset that we shouldn't look over our shoulder. He says forgetting those things which are behind. And Paul's using really an athletic picture. A picture of running. And in a marathon. And so Paul says, you're not supposed to look over your shoulder. If Paul was in the lead, he was not checking back to see if somebody else was on his tail. He did not look back at the long stretch that he just ran. He was never going to look back. Unfortunately, I think that looking back in our spiritual walk can often be a major hurdle of our human flesh. We want to look back. A classic example is if any of you men mow your lawn. The second that you're done mowing the lawn, you step back and you, you decide you want to look at it after a while. And you really haven't fully mowed the lawn unless you step back and go, man, that's a nice lawn. <laughs> but really, you're still not done because then you go in and you have to tell your wife, see, honey, don't we have a nice lawn? We love to look back at the things that have already been done. 
As we admire what we've already accomplished in our spiritual walk, we're often falling behind in the current section of the race we're in. Whether we look back with nostalgia or maybe even sometimes looking back with despair of the past, overly reflecting on things that have already happened, dwelling on spiritual failures, not being able to get past a heavy trial of your past, or even sometimes not being able to get past our own successes. And the more we look back, the more we're forfeiting the opportunity to run forward. And so this can cause us to spiritually stagnate in our run of this Christian life. And let's be honest, if there was ever a year where we were going to reflect on what's behind us, it would be 2020. (laughs) Everything has seemed to happen this year as we are forced into quarantine, as we had times where we couldn't even be together, as our lives were completely changed. If there was ever a year we'd be tempted to look back, it would be this crazy year of 2020. I'm not saying there's not wisdom in looking back and learning lessons from the past. That's why we have history class. Okay, so I'm not saying get rid of all the history classes in this message tonight. But you do have to adjust our mindset and learn not to look over our shoulders. Friends, if we take too much time to look back, we begin to fall back in the race. We can't live in our past trials. We can't live in our past successes. We have to begin adjusting our mindset by learning to look forward and not look over our own shoulder. But as he continues, he also tells us that we need to grind ahead. And that word grind I use intentionally because he says, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Not only are we not looking over our shoulder in verse 13, but we're also reaching forth unto those things which are before. And the idea of reaching forth is straining ahead. The muscles are strained. The focus is solid and steadfast. And the dedication is unquestioned. Uh, in, in one of the commentaries I looked at, it described this word as exerting oneself to the uttermost. Paul's eyes were focused on the finishing line. He was striving to see it, and even if it wasn't immediately in view, he was looking, expecting it to come over every hill that he ran over. He wanted it so bad, and even though the body hurts, he pushes through the discomfort. He wants one thing, and he's not forgetting it. What we, we, what we really learn from this phrase is that running the Christian life takes work. It's not an automatic thing. It takes so much work. And living the Christian life does take a godly amount of effort. And God can help us through that. You know, I remember I was in a project in college with a student who had pretty much no work ethic. Um, There was a group that really struggled, and so they switched up the groups, and I ended up with this individual. And he was a gamer. He sat in his room, and I knew that if, though basically, if you had a project with him and there was something on the PowerPoint, he would read the words of the PowerPoint and be done, have nothing else to say. So I remember in the project, we were talking in our student meeting before we had the presentation. I said, you have to have something else besides what's on the PowerPoint that you say. It's like, I don't even care what it is, just at least something else that you say besides just the words on the PowerPoint. And he came in, and he had one other sentence, and then he read the PowerPoint, and then he was done. And he was proud of himself, like really big time proud of himself. And it was one of those things where I thought, huh, you might even think that's not really a great student. Well, what happened? Well, we passed the project, but... He decided to drop out of the class. Why? Because he wasn't willing to put in the necessary work. He allowed other things to be a distraction from what was one of his main jobs in life at that point. What kind of work, friends, are we putting into our Christian walk? Do we strain forward? Do we push ahead? What will keep us going? And really, the whole, the whole thing that will keep us going is the finish line. It's the prize. So run that you may obtain The race is so small in the scope of all eternity. This little life that we live 
is lived really for a life that will be for all eternity. And so our life now is a blip on the radar, but it is such an important blip on the radar. What are you giving for the cause of Jesus Christ? Keep running. Don't quit because you are not done yet. We must not look at what's behind us, but pursue that which is before. And we find that we need to press on for the prize. In verse 14, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. By forgetting what's behind and straining on towards what's ahead, we are pressing on. You have been called to this high calling, this upward calling of God in Christ Jesus, because we live for a world that's past this world. You are called by Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the ways that we can push forward when we're tempted to spiritually stagnate? Have you ever made excuses for your spiritual walk due to the unbelievably difficult factors of this year? Let's be real, the paths that we used to walk have been completely torn apart. I remember growing up in New England, and you had all the roads that you would drive on, and then after an ice storm, you'd have all kinds of branches all over the road, and the path you usually took is no longer your normal path, and you have to take another one. That feels like what we've gone through this year, and in times like that, it also means that we need to find another path. It's not an excuse to stop. We have to push forward. You know, I've heard a lot of men that I respect say during this specific time in our life and in our world, there has never been a better opportunity to share the gospel with our neighbors. There's never been a time where people are so focused on death as they are when they're scared about the coronavirus, a time when people are looking for something or someone to give them security, a time when we're isolated and long, longing for someone to show love, a time when the unrest all around us point to the unrest within our own souls. And it would be such a wonderful time for the gospel if there were people who were afraid, unsure, and searching for answers. And that truly is the time that we're in. That time is now. And so many of the normal paths that we have taken are not there. And so we have to pray, God, what paths do you want me to take? What kind of creativity do I need to share the gospel with my neighbor? And so we have to ask ourselves, how can we push forward rather than spiritually stagnate in the midst of this time? It's going to take effort because we're not done yet. And it's going to take creativity, because we're not done yet. And so we must learn, as we look at pressing on towards the prize of the high calling of God, we must adjust our mindset. We must choose to, to not focus on the past, but instead to push forward onto what is before and embrace the present. And Paul also warns us to stay in the race. Look in verse 15, because he says, "'Let us therefore as many as be perfect,' that means mature, "'be thus minded.'" And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us mind the same thing. So Paul is focusing on the endurance of the race here. Because in order to push forward, it, when, our, when our muscles are tired, when we're trying to push forward towards the prize, we do get tired. And there comes a temptation. And that temptation is to drop out of the race. And that temptation can often be great. And if we're being honest, any of us who have, had, have any level of life experience have had people that we care about drop out of the race. In fact, sometimes we ourselves are tempted to drop out of the race. And God's Word tells us that if we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. And so thank God that He upholds us by His strength and grace. And don't give up. In Hebrews 12, we're told to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And because he ran his race with patience and he endured much more than we ever could, 
we can also run our race with patience because our Savior will walk with us. He will run right beside us. You know, I've never been much of a runner, but I think the reason I'm a children's pastor is because I remember random things like this. I remember in elementary school PE, and we'd have to run around the parking lot a certain amount of times. And one of the things I realized is I needed a friend to keep me going. And so I ran with my friend Chris, and we would run the whole thing. We were not faster than other people. We were not more athletic than other people. And we just kept each other running. We never stopped. So when I was about to give up, Chris would say, nope, we'll keep going. And when Chris was about to give up, I said, no, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. And usually we ended up doing pretty well because of that. But we needed a friend alongside us to run with us. Well, friends, there's someone who's run a much more grueling race than you've ever run. And he's willing to run with you. And that's Jesus Christ. And so we can run with patience and endurance the race that is set before us. Believer, running the spiritual race might be really hard for you. There might be times where you're tempted to give up. Where your workload has risen dramatically. Where our world that seems out of control has caused much more concern in your life. Where family difficulties pile up. Financial stress. Fear of the future. We all face those hurdles and burdens in running the race that we run. And really, that's never been something new for Christians. There have always been times where the race gets harder to run. And we have to choose to continue to run it. Run with patience, with endurance, that race that is set before us. And not only as we do that, we need to learn to discipline our thoughts. Because he says, as many as be perfect, and that word means mature, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this unto you. And this is a disciplined thinking, a focusing on the prize. It's keeping your head in the game while you're playing. You know, if any of you have ever played church softball over the summertime, you'll know that when I play, I don't have much of a swing, okay? And uh, this year, I finally learned something that, like, every kid learns in, like, peewee softball, you know, um, when they're hitting it off the tee. And it's that simple thing of keeping your eye on the ball. Because I realized every time I swung, I closed my eyes. It's pretty hard to hit when you do that. And it, too bad it took me, like, four years to figure that out. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where you learn, when you learn to keep your eye on it, it things go better. <laughs> Thank goodness for our team. And, uh, and in our spiritual walk, it's the same way. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We have to keep our eyes focused on the prize. It takes disciplined thinking. It's easy to take a distraction. It's easy to see something on the sidelines and to start running that direction. You ever been driving when you can tell that somebody's on their phone, right? They look off the road and all of a sudden they swerve into the next lane. We have to keep our eyes focused on where God wants us to go. We have to discipline our thoughts. We have to keep doing what's working and really what God wants us to do. In verse 16, nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. He's saying, now the only way that we do look back to the past is looking back and saying, look how we faithfully follow the Lord here. Look what we have already attained. Let us continue to do what helped us attain. This is like a process-oriented athlete. I have some friends who really have good coaches in their life, and what they do is they make sure that they love the process of improving. And so they, they get all about the process. In fact, some of them almost love the process more than winning, and then you have to remind them you also want to win. But the process is so important, and so even in our Christian walk, the process is important. And as we've seen the gospel work in the past, the gospel works now. Keep using the same process. God, Christians should look at those periods of life when they're growing. What happened during those times? What led to your spiritual success? Was it more faithful time in the Word? Was it seeking more opportunities with the lost? 
Was it an extra focus on discipling others? Were you pulling somebody alongside and helping them in their walk with Jesus, and in doing so, your own walk was strengthened? Was it faithful service in your church? Look at those times when you were walking faithfully with the Lord and say, Lord, can you help me have that now? Give me opportunities. Even if your world looks different, you can still push forward. Discipline your thinking by focusing on the end and keep doing the right thing. Believer, you're not done yet. And so as we start tonight, we press forward by readjusting our mindset, not looking over our shoulder, but instead focusing on that which is ahead as we press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And secondly, tonight, we realize that we press forward by admiring godly examples. Look with me in verse 17. Paul says, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Paul brings us to an important practice of the spiritual walk, one I think maybe that we sometimes neglect, and it's to admire godly examples. Paul is reminding us of this vital aspect of our spiritual walk. Have spiritual leaders that you look up to. Have you ever studied somebody with godly character? Because that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. And he starts, oddly enough, it feels a little odd, but he starts with himself. <laughs> and so he, he wants us to admire godly examples because godly examples should be observed and emulated. He says, brethren, in verse 17, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. And so he emphasizes, first of all, the importance of following, and really that word means imitating. He says, I want you to imitate together, I want you to imitate me. So followers means imitators together is fellow, the idea here is fellow imitators. And Ephesians 5.1 actually has the same uh, concept where, where uh, we see in, it says, be ye therefore imitators of God as dear children. You know, I'm still pretty whole, young in this whole parenthood thing, but one thing I've realized is that Ava does imitate us. Um, for instance, we were down at Cross Impact a few weeks ago, and one of our officers put out a pouty lip to her. They just stuck out their bottom lip, and Ava did that. And then she did that for the next three days. <laughs> and she wasn't upset. She wasn't pouting because she was sad. She just pouted because she figured out her face could do that, and so she continued to do it. She imitated that officer and kept doing it for days. And we find that she continues to do that. Children imitate. And in the same way, we should be imitating not only our Heavenly Father, but also godly influences in our lives. So not only are they called to imitate, they're called to do it together. It's the job of believers together to engage in our walk with Christ. We are to be imitating godly examples and community together. Now, is Paul having somewhat of an ego boost here? Is he telling them, follow me because I'm awesome? <laughs> was this arrogant of Paul to say? It, it absolutely was not. In fact, in other parts of this book, we see that Paul encouraged imitation of other genuine believers. He encouraged them to imitate Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. And even right after that, he then encouraged them to imitate Epaphroditus. He put quality examples in front of them because he knew that you get what you honor. The people you put forward are the ones that others will know that they're supposed to imitate. And so Paul did that. But even more so, in the beginning of chapter 2, he gave the ultimate example, the example of Jesus Christ. And in, in chapter 2, if you have your Bibles here, he says in verse 5 of, of Philippians chapter 2, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And many of you know that wonderful passage, but in verse 5 he emphasizes, think the way that Jesus thought. And in that case, he's really speaking of humility and obedience. 
So we're to be imitators of Christ. And Paul actually said that in another passage about himself. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, uh, he says, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And that is the most important part. When we are looking at people to imitate, people that we should walk like, what should we appreciate most about them? Not their skill, not their personality, not their likability, but their Christ-likeness. We should desire to be as Christ-like as those people are in our lives. Watch those godly examples. He says later, he says, and mark them, but as we're back now in chapter 3, um, he says, brethren, in verse 17, be followers together of me and mark them, which walk so as ye have us for an example. And so he uses that word mark. It means to contemplate, to watch or skillfully notice. My favorite definition is to spy out. Spy out these people. In modern term language, is Paul telling them to stalk their godly examples? In a sense, he kind of is, saying, I want you to watch them closely. Those who walk, and walk is a theological term for Paul. It means the lifestyle that we live. He says, watch the way they live. Study it, mark it, write it down as you have us for an example. And that phrase really has the idea of those who set the same example that we set for you, who have the same pattern of life that we do. If there's people who live the way that you know God wants us to live, watch them, mark them, and in a non-creepy way, study them. <laughs> it's so important for us to look at the examples of others. One thing I've really gotten into lately is reading uh, different biographies of important Christian leaders. I found it fascinating and really beneficial for me to read many of those stories. I've read one recently about Spurgeon, his humble beginnings in the country, his, really his funny stories all the time, his boldness and compassion, his single-mindedness, his impact even as a child, the lives that he impacted for Christ are pretty incredible. And the way that he stood up in the midst of controversy. I even more recently read about D.L. Moody and saw his heart for children who were unreached completely in some of the roughest areas of the city of Chicago. And I watched the preaching that he did across the world, the care that he gave even for every place that he had been a part of. He often would go back to those places where he had served and he cared about those people again and again. And the faith that he demonstrated in his preaching tour throughout England where revival ended up resulting from it. I look at so many different examples. Even John Newton is my most recent one, the author of the song Amazing Grace, who was a former slave trader who was truly saved by grace. And he had an impact on William Cooper, the hymn writer who uh, had suicidal tendencies and actually ended up writing the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And he really resonated with that third verse that the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And so John Newton discipled William Cooper and another man named William Wilberforce, who ended up being a major influence in stopping the slave trade. I look back at all of these men, and indeed, they were flawed. And if you read any honest biography, you will see the flaws. But I really want to pursue Jesus the way that they did. I want to make an impact for the cause of Christ like they did. And even as we look back at those from the past, we also have living examples one thing I've realized about myself in recent years is that I am a studier of people. It's kind of a funny quirk of my personality. I notice like really specific things about them, and then I make another mistake, and right after I do that, I then tell them that I realized it. <laughs> and uh, sent some of my best friends into some real soul-searching when I brought up those moments in their life. But, but really, we should learn to look and to study those who are our most godly examples, because those are the people I want to study the most. The people in my life who have uh, invested in me. Those godly men and women that I want to pursue Jesus the way that they do. There's a lot to gain from those moments. 
godly pastors, Christian leaders, members of this body. I so desperately want to pursue Jesus the way that they do. I want to have an impact for Jesus the way that they do. And Paul knows that all of us need that. And you often do become the people who you observe the most. Who are you marking and studying in your mind? Who are your role models and why? Is it because of their skill or their ability or popularity or their Christ-likeness? As, as we would seek to be, uh, imitate Paul and other leaders in our life, we imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so when you see a quality of Jesus in somebody else, seek to have that same quality. Is there anyone in your spiritual walk that you are actively studying, watching, and marking? Do you ever point out those people to your kids? Say, do you realize what that person is doing? That is a really wonderful thing that they're doing for the Lord. Do you ever intentionally try to imitate those godly examples? Or even, like I was saying, read biographies of Christian heroes or picking out some godly examples to follow. Follow them as they follow Christ and your life will be changed for the better. Paul encourages us to look at godly examples because they deserve to be emulated, but he also warns us to do this because ungodly enemies should also be observed. Paul gives us a cautionary tale in this passage, and this is a hard one for Paul to talk about. As we look in verse 18, and in many of your Bibles, it's in parentheses, but I find it important. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things. In comparison to imitating believers who are walking the right way, now Paul tells us of the walk of some others. In fact, these are ones who he just said he had told the Philippians about often. But he says, now I even tell you weeping. And if you're to look in the original language of this, it actually, he uses the word weeping first. I weep while I'm speaking. It's one of the only times I think that we ever see Paul weeping in all of his writings. This is something that's really tender to him. And why is he crying? If you've ever had a moment where you're sitting there and a speaker gets emotional and they start to tear up as they're telling you about something, often you begin to feel that emotion with them. And it also tells you what is most important to them when that emotion rises out of them. We see that there's something that's really important to Paul because he starts to cry as he's saying this. He says, I tell you even weeping, for many walk, of whom I now tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And again, he uses that word walk, but it's not just the teaching that they have that's wrong, it's the way they live. They are living as enemies. That idea there is hostiles. They are hostile to the cross. And Paul and these enemies, they're likely people that Paul had invested in, people who ended up going the wrong way. Maybe they were even within the Christian circles. It doesn't seem that the Philippians know them personally, but Paul does. And he's been warning them about them. And he has poured everything into them, and he watches them take a direction contrary to the cross. And I don't know if these were those who were saved and then took a wayward path, or maybe those who played the game and then went another direction. But whatever situation they're in, this causes Paul to cry. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he does tell us what they were like. How did they go that direction? And he's going to warn us of the danger of following those dominant cultural fashions instead of the way we follow the cross. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and they mind earthly things. He starts by saying that they're going down a destructive path. They're heading in a way that's going to be hard. The way of a transgressor, Proverbs tells us, is hard. And he says their God is their stomach. 
Uh, this is a, a kind of an interesting phrase to figure out. I think Paul gives more clarification in some other passages. In Romans 16, 18, he says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, he says, Meats for the belly, the belly for the meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I think what he's trying to communicate in this passage when he says their God is their belly is that they live for all their sinful appetites. They're heading down a destructful path, and indeed, they desire all the things that they shouldn't, and they pursue them anyways. They lived for their, spiritual, uh, for their sinful appetites, for their own pleasure. Their body was not of one lived and sacrificed for God, like Romans 12 tells us. They don't like Paul's mantra that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because they want to live for what feels good right now. He continues to describe them when he says their glory is in their shame. They praise things that should be shameful. And the loss of shame in someone's life is not a positive trait. Shameful speech, modesty, open lifestyle, overt worldliness. Man, our world loves to celebrate the things that God's word considers shameful. And so for many of them, not only are they going on a destructive path, and they live for all their pleasures, but then they glory in those things that, that are shameful. And then he says they set their mind on earthly things. And really, last phrase is at the heart of all the previous ones. That their heart is set on earthly things. They're worldly. Their mind is set on things of this earth. They don't want to focus on that which is eternal because they want what they want right now. And friends, I think we're all of us can say that we're probably worldlier than we think we are. We all have a love for this world that if we're not careful, will overwhelm our love for our God. And so Paul weeps as he writes over these men and women. They likely had a high level of accountability if Paul was this well. He had, the Apostle Paul himself had invested in them and they went another direction. They knew what living for Jesus would look like and they chose otherwise. They loved their destructive path. They loved all their pleasures now. They loved to throw away inhibitions and glorify their shameful lifestyle. Simply put, they loved this world. No doubt this is what Paul felt when Demas left. And this, I think, is, has to be one of the other most emotional moments in Paul's writings. He told Timothy, Do thy diligence to come unto me shortly, Timothy, for Demas, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so many disciples of Jesus Christ leave because the love of the world overcomes their love of God. Demas had traveled with Paul. He had served alongside him. He poured his life into Demas, invested in him. And Demas forsook it because he decided that he loved what he could get now more than eternity. Even as a young pastor, I can already identify with this, this feeling that Paul has, this pain. I've had friends that I've served alongside with in ministry, that I've even traveled with, poured my life into, done mission trips with, invested in, and they've invested in me who now have forsaken Christ because they love this world more. And so quickly, when they decide they love this world, they then celebrate and triumph the most popular speaking points of our culture now. And, they, and then they get much uh, really positive feedback from people because they put out the most popular thing right away. It's really simple, though. They love this world more than Jesus. These are people that I studied with in ministry together, preached together, led people to Christ together. What happened? Simple. They love Jesus, or they love this world more than they love Jesus. And as Paul talks about his friends that did that, it brings tears to his eyes, and hopefully it would bring tears to the eyes of any of us believers with a spiritual pulse. 
that when someone walks away from Jesus Christ, it should bring some tears to our eyes. And I'm terrified in my own walk and really just as I look at our churches around us that we've allowed worldliness to affect our hearts all too much. It's derailing so many and stagnating many others. And so as we are to look forward, we can't look back and we can't look to the side at the world that is going to distract us because Satan indeed wants to pull us off the path. Friends, Paul gives us a really important admonition here for us to realize. Not only do we need to look at godly leaders, but we need to also carefully look at those who have went the opposite way. So look at godly examples. Paul is reminding us here that we are not done yet. Push forward. Look at godly examples. And remember this caution. And never, we're never very far from the path of Edemus. We're one trial away, one bad thought away, one bad friend away, one worldly pleasure away. Any of those things can derail the believer from the path that God wants them to walk on. We have to be disciplined in our walk with God as we run forward. We should be reminded of Paul's admonition that he had in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives a prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul himself was scared that he could be a castaway, and so he asked God under the power of the Holy Spirit to allow him to stay disciplined. So in one major part of doing that is studying and imitating godly examples. It's not just a bonus for our spiritual life, it really is vital. Look to godly examples to follow and imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so as we look at this passage tonight, we see first of all that really we should have an adjusted mindset that we should look forward onto those things which are before. But not only that, we need to um, look at godly examples and learn to appreciate them. And lastly, we need to appreciate our real home. And that comes in verse 20 and 21. He says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And so, so Paul closes off this chapter by trying to remind us where we're from. He says, for our conversation is in heaven. The idea there of that word is citizenship. It is a word that sounds like politics. The Greek word actually is polituma, and it sounds like politics. And with that idea is in our home is that there are the rights of home, the privileges of home, all the joys of home. In a sense, the word has the idea of a patriotism for our real heavenly home. And as Paul is talking to the Philippians, he's talking to these who are in Macedonia, but the city of Philippi was given all the rights of Rome. And so they are in Macedonia as citizens of another country, as citizens of Rome. And in the same way, we are in this world as citizens of another. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And someday it's going to be so wonderful that we will all get to worship back here on this earth in a new heaven and a new earth. And our primary home is not what we're doing right now. It's the new heaven and the new earth. And we anxiously await the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because home is with Jesus. In his arms, we are home. And so we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. And the, the passage here has the idea of awaiting. The idea is eagerly awaiting. In Romans 8.23, he says that we eagerly await our adoption 
In Romans 8.19, he talks about how creation was eagerly, has an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In Romans 8.20 20 and 21, he talks about how creation will be liberated from its bondage. And in 1 Corinthians 1.7, he says that Christians eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And indeed, we should eagerly await our homecoming. It's a hometown feel. And if any of you ever have moved away from your hometown and you're to go back to it, there's a real nostalgia you feel when you walk down those streets that you once used to walk and when you see all the places that you used to see. But really, the most nostalgic parts aren't the things that you see, it's the people who are there. And sometimes as you walk back through those places, those people are no longer there. And it reminds you of those who you miss, those people who really are home to you. And when we, get to start, when we get to leave this life on earth, we get to be with Jesus Christ. And with Him, we're home. I think this is something we should consciously remind ourselves. We can settle into this life and we forget about eternity. But this is something that we need to remember. We're not done yet, but we can press on towards the mark. This life is incredibly short. And even we're going to find that our own body is not going to last into eternity. Because he says in verse 21... He says, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able even to subdue all things unto himself. And he tells us here that our bodies are going to be transformed. They're going to be completely changed, and the sinful flesh that we now wear will be replaced with a heavenly body. It's not a disguise, it's our true new body. And thank goodness our bodies won't last, but we will see a heavenly body. Friends, this life is temporary. I remember this summer when we were uh, finishing setting up from softball, we were putting some stuff into uh, Jared Allen's truck. And as we were putting it into his truck, I was like, all right, let's be careful. We don't want to scratch it. And Jared goes, ah, I don't care. I'm not saving this for the next guy. And in a sense, this life that we're living is not the only life we live. Life will be lived for eternity. And so this life, we need to live for that cause. You know, one of the funny things I do is if, if I'm ever watching a sports game and I'm not able to be home for it, I try to record it and DVR it and then ignore anything that someone could possibly say about it. And if I hear that my team lost, uh, there's no way I'm watching it, right? I can't put myself through the grueling time of watching that. I hope that I don't know. In fact, uh, one time this summer, I had done a successful job avoiding knowing anything about a game that I wanted to know about the whole night. And Tim Betancourt, out of the blue, he didn't say, hey, did you hear about? He just said, hey, did you hear your team lost? I was like, Tim, come on, right in the middle of that. So obviously I did not go back and watch that game afterwards. If we know that the end of the story is bad, we don't want to watch it. But friends, when it comes to our spiritual walk, we do know the end of the story. And it's a, and it's a story worth engaging in. That though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We know how it will go. We will be transformed. Christ will reign. All will be well. But that time is not yet. And so we're encouraged. Work for that night is coming. You're not done yet, so press on. God is not done with you yet. He calls you to press on tonight from this passage by adjusting your mindset, by admiring godly examples, and by appreciating your real home. When I made that grand pre-car with my dad and my grandfather, every time I thought I was done, the answer was, no, Andy, you're not done yet. But when the races were done, all the effort I put into making and maintaining my car was worth it. My family didn't let me take any shortcuts. 
They made sure that I kept doing, making this car the right, right way. At every stage, I wasn't done yet, but that made the experience so much more rewarding at the end. Maybe some here tonight, as we're even talking about this picture of a spiritual race, have not begun the race yet. Maybe like Saul in the beginning of chapter 3, you're living for everything that this world has to offer, but you've never actually accepted Christ as your Savior. And your life is lived for all of those things, but those things don't give meaning. And maybe today there's some who are here who decide it's time for me to start running this race. Maybe there's some of you who decide, I want to be a Christian, I want to engage in this race and live a life infused with meaning. For many others, maybe we've spiritually stagnated. Maybe we've been tempted to throw in the towel, almost ready to give up. And I hope that this passage that Paul gives us tonight reminds you of this important truth. Keep pushing forward. Look ahead. Think of the goal. Press on. Mimic God the examples. Think about your eternity because, friends, we are not done yet. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.